you're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii is well into another COVID surge. Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi said he may return to mass mandates. And here on our show yesterday, State Health Director Libby Char said maybe we need to return to takeout over indoor dining. We're approaching 5,000 cases a day, 4,000 cases a day, and I think that's probably realistic. So it's out there, it's everywhere in the community. Avoid large gatherings, you know, consider getting takeout at restaurants again until the numbers come back down. You know, this morning we talked to the Hawaii Restaurant Association. Greg Maples is the organization's chairman and serves as vice president of food services at the Polynesian Cultural Center. Maples thinks the return to previous restrictions would be devastating. We appreciate Dr. Char and all that she represents. I mean, she's got a hard job, and she's got to try to look out for the best interests, you know, from her perspective, from the chair that she sits in. So we know that. However, I think it's important to remember that we here, the people of Hawaii on all the islands, we're seasoned veterans when it comes to the pandemic, and we get what works and what doesn't work. As I travel to the island, I see lots of people who still wear masks. They wear it to the Best Buy. They wear it to Costco people wear it to church. Some people still don't go to certain places because they're not comfortable. So I think we have to remember that we're seasoned veterans. We can manage through this. We knew this would happen, and the surge is happening. I do have some real concern with the messaging of what Mayor Blangiardi said about masks, what Dr. Char said about takeout, because I do think that there are people listening on the mainland. And we have to remember that from a restaurant point of view, we just got through the toughest two years in the history of restaurants. And we're not done because we continue to have inflation, we have supply chain issues, we have restaurant staffing issues. And when people on the mainland, which is primarily where you know the tourists are coming from, when they hear this kind of rhetoric, what happens is they go, you know what, we'll just go to Florida. Let's just go to Florida and not worry about it. We're not going to go back to masks, especially if you can be on a plane and not have a mask but come to Hawaii and have to wear a mask. And listen, I absolutely love Mayor Blangiardi and support all the things that he's been doing for us. And he has been such a great partner. And if I were him, I would keep, you know, mass mandate in my pocket. But I think it's going to be really hard to pull that out and use it on the people of Hawaii because we're pretty good about knowing how to handle this. And the other thing is we have to remember is when you look at our hospitals, I mean, we have 86 people in the hospital on Oahu. That's nothing. We only have two people in ICU for COVID and only two ventilators out of 500 plus that are being used for COVID. So the numbers are down and we know that this strain that's going around isn't putting people in the hospital. It's making people sick and people know how to use it. Now, we also need to remember that if we did for some reason entertain takeout, it would be the end of restaurants. We could not. To even consider that is is just horrifying to us because if you remember, we had restaurants that when we went to takeout, not every restaurant is a takeout restaurant. And they pivoted and they tried to do it. You have some of these really nice fine dining. You have other restaurants, you know, in Ala Moana. You just can't do takeout the same way you can if you're a McDonald's or if you're, you know, one of the other restaurants that are maybe in some of the shopping centers. So to do that would be devastating. And we're just not in a position to do that because I think we're not through seeing restaurants close. Now, as people will say to me, Greg, I hear that there are restaurants opening. I want people to really look at who is opening. A lot of times it's the chains that are coming. One of the things that we've got to look into the future and make sure doesn't happen is that we mandate or legislate our small businesses out of our future and all we end up with is islands filled with chain restaurants. Now, I'm, I'm not saying chain restaurants are bad things. I used to own 80 Sonic drive-ins, so I get that. But that's not who we are. We're not a chain-driven restaurant island. We love our mom and pop. We love the culture of our cuisine here. And some of these mom and pops quite clearly would never survive a, a takeout mandate. And I don't think that's really on the table. I think Dr. Char is just trying to, you know, get our attention and do her job. I do think that it is troublesome that we would say that publicly because there are people listening. And as you know, our Asian markets have not opened up yet, and they're very skittish about it. And they they have a control over their people that's a lot different than what we're used to. And so it may be a while before we get those back 
And the other thing is, is we're just ready to go into our summer months. And this is the time we've been waiting for. No restrictions, no mandates. Tourists are coming back. We need to make money for the next three months so that we can try to right the ship. But to come out now and to start talking about that just days before the vacation holiday season starts, to me, is really troublesome. And I get it. We're, we've seen a surge, but I just go back to this every time. The people of Hawaii are veterans. They understand how to navigate through a pandemic. Now, do we have people that are sometimes reckless? Yes. Do we have people that shouldn't have certain parties? Maybe. But the bottom line is, when there's something that makes me uncomfortable, I put a mask on or I just bow out of it and just say I'm not going to go. The timing is not good. The governor and his entourage just returned from Japan. I did happen to have a brief chat with John DeFries from the HTA last night about this. And he says, yeah, Dr. Char, you know, who is charged with public health, you know, a lot of the messaging is going to affect what happens in the months to come as we await the return of the Japanese and and see what the, the government over there does. The timing's not great. No, the timing's not great. I would hope that Dr. Char in those positions have learned enough through the pandemic that their words matter. So they have to be careful what they say. The other thing is the message to the people ought to be there is a surge. You know, we have to inform people what's going on to help them make better decisions, not to make the decisions for them, but to help them make better decisions. And so, you know, we really haven't done a good job in any part of our government reminding people about if you're, you know, sick, here's what to do. We kind of just let it go. I know that internally, lots of restaurants have continued to have those conversations with their people. I think we need to ramp that up and invite people to remember those things that help us and, you know, maybe some kind of a campaign like that. But we have to inform so that people can make their own decisions and not always revert back to we're going to make the decision for them. That's a scary and bad road to go down. It's going to be a challenge for everybody. Uh, You know, and I don't know how it is with, with staffing. Oh, it's absolutely horrible. You know, we have tough staffing as it is. And, you know, we have restaurants that open for three hours a day because they can't get staffing. It's really tough. And then when you add in, people are getting sick. Well, that even, you know, multiplies it. But here's the thing, though, is I've talked to so many restaurant owners and operators. We do have people in our restaurants who, you know, they're inevitably going to get sick. But, man, we know what to do. We know what to do. We know as soon as you start feeling it, don't come to work. You know, isolate, stay home, get tested. If you come back, wear a mask. You know, we know all of these things. And restaurant owners and operators are living on a razor's edge. And so they are making good, sound decisions to not let people who are sick work, to not invite employees back who are sick. Because they're living on that razor's edge, they cannot afford to have that perception in a restaurant that they have people that are sick. They're doing what they need to do to make sure they keep the restaurants safe. That was Greg Maples with the Hawaii Restaurant Association talking to us about this latest COVID surge and its impact on the food industry. It is now time for our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about a story by Christina Jedra. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the headline of the story, Honolulu architect admitted to bribery, but he still has his license. Yes. And how did that come to be? Well, Christina has done the legwork. The architect is William Wong. He's the CEO of Asia Pacific Architect Consultants. And what he did is last year he pleaded guilty to paying over $100,000 in bribes to, guess where, the city permitting office, Department of Planning and Permitting, uh, paying employees in order to fast-track permitting for projects. Uh, And he does, in fact, face uh, some criminal time, some prison time, rather, depending on what the court says. But, yeah, he is still working Uh, As an architect, he is still interacting with DPP, uh, and at issue is, why is this the case? In fact, Christina looked it up. He just had his license renewed. He's in good standing for another two years, 
And that's got people scratching their head. Not only is he in good standing, as I said, he's still doing work with the same agency that that he pleaded guilty to bribing over a hundred grand. Yeah, and uh, she did talk to Sandy Ma over at Common Cause Hawaii, right? Who's just really disappointed that uh, this happens. Yeah, Sandy feels very strongly that this shouldn't be the case. That you should have your license revoked right away. Well, Christina did check with. Uh, William Wong's attorney, that's Megan Cow, and, and she said, look, he can still do this until his license is revoked. So why hasn't the license been revoked? Well, it turns out the board, the professional board that um, oversees architects, and it's a long title, Hawaii Board of Professional Engineers, Architects, Surveyors, and Landscape Architects. Yes, they are the agency that has the power to suspend or to revoke William Wong's license, but, in fact, there's been nothing done, no discipline at all whatsoever. Why? Well, the board says, and, and wait for it, the board says you have to wait until he's convicted, uh, even though, or rather, let me, let, me, let me correct that, he's not convicted until he's sentenced, even though the guy pleaded guilty to doing this. They said, we can't take action, the board, until he is formally sentenced. That's not going to happen until October and by the way, the sentencing has already been delayed twice. It was originally supposed to be back in August of 2021, and, and now we're waiting. And all the while, Mr. Wong is continuing to be able to do this work. Right. So legally, he can uh, practice, or in, in, as he did, reapply for his license. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can understand why people's eyebrows are, are being raised over this because, I mean, isn't there something in their bylaws that could say, well, we need to pause it? Well, that's that's a good question, and, and and Christina again checked with the board, and they says no, there's there's no no language uh, in their their documents, their guiding uh, their guidelines, if you will, no prohibition against anyone uh, being arrested for a crime or pleading guilty. Having said that, there is a language that says you can revoke that license if, and this is listen to this carefully, if you engage in professional misconduct or some sort of record of untruthfulness, untruthfulness, untrustworthiness, particularly uh, in fair dealing and financial integrity issues. Well, one could certainly read a lot into that. It would seem under that language that the licensing board would have rationale to act, but they are saying, in fact, as I indicated earlier, they've got to wait until he's, he's formally sentenced. Yeah, uh, but, you know, there have been other cases, I think, where... Uh folks in a similar situation just surrender their licenses. Right. But there's another famous case. Remember Frank Lyon, the engineer that was caught bribing something like over $200,000 to various government officials. It it, it took some time, several years for that to go through. Christina did check with DPP, did talk to the deputy director there. And and they're kind of saying, well, gee, this is really, really strange. I mean, this this activity that Mr. Wong did happened over a four-year period. He was even paying these employees practically on a monthly basis, almost as if they were on payroll. We should note that two of those employees currently are awaiting trial on federal charges. Remember that big bust with the DPP last year from the feds? Uh, but this is the way it's going right now. If Wong is finally sentenced, he could face up to 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. Yeah, a head-scratcher, this one. <laughs> but, uh, thanks so much, uh, Chad. You're I welcome. appreciate the story. Take care. We have been talking to Chad Blair, a politics and opinion editor. To read Christina Jedra's full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, presenting Windborn's The Music of the Rolling Stones, featuring songs such as Gimme Shelter, with full rock band May 28th at the Waikiki Shell. Tickets at myhso.org. Live events are coming back, and so is HPR's community calendar. Got an art exhibit or a live performance? Maybe something for the whole family we invite you to submit your event to the HPR Community Calendar. It's free. Submit your event at hawaiipublicradio.org events.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Healthcare Centers, providing primary care at multiple locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling 808-691-8200. Search efforts for 23-year-old Chase Ingalls reported missing after hiking in the Makapu Lighthouse Trail area on Oahu were called off earlier this month. He has not been found. His disappearance serves as a stark reminder of how treacherous our state's outdoors can be and the importance of our search and rescue teams. That is the focus of an upcoming 2022 Search and Rescue Conference on Oahu to build relationships and increase lines of communication among stakeholders in Hawaii's search and rescue world. The Conversations, Russell Subiano got the opportunity to talk to two featured speakers, survivor men Les Stroud and the Coast Guard's Kevin Cooper. Well, I'm in one of the last great unexplored jungles on the planet, Papua New Guinea. Here, you can't survive off the land. I'm about to find out why. By spending the next seven days out here, without water, very little food, no gear, and no camera crew, alone. That's Les Stroud, better known to many as Survivor Man, and the star of the popular television and YouTube series of the same name. He's been demonstrating how to survive various scenarios in multiple climates and locations around the world for over 20 years. When it comes to knowing how best to survive rescue scenarios in Hawaii's forests and mountains, Stroud is one of the few who can say he's done it all. One might think it would be hard to get lost here. You know, you just keep walking and eventually you'll get somewhere. But people regularly get lost on trails and forests in our mountains. And while we don't have large predators, we do have steep cliffs. In your experience surviving in tropical forest or mountainous settings that are similar to Hawaii, what have you found to be the essential things to do or remember in order to stay alive? Mm, well, I've been to Hawaii many, many, I've been to all the islands in Hawaii, I've hiked them all, very familiar with it. When you said, you know, one would think you could just walk out and eventually you'd find right. a road. But there is no just in a survival scenario. And there is no, just over the hill, there's a road around the corner, there's a road. You know, topography can be incredibly difficult to maneuver in some of the, the, the most benign areas. And you can find yourself lost and stuck, or maybe it's not even lost. Maybe it's just stuck yeah. with a broken ankle. That can happen, you know, hundreds of yards from a road and you're still in a very dangerous situation. So that's the thing is, I think people often make that mistake. And then as far as to answer your question, a lot of times with, with survival teaching, and then when I brought it to television, it became sort of this different thing. And I, and I always say, you know, the right way to know what to do is to train, train, train. You don't just watch a t TV show or read a book or listen to a podcast and all of a sudden you know how to survive. So if you're going to hike in Hawaii, you still need to know what you're doing. You don't just sort of see it and think, I want to do it. You, know, you don't watch Olympic skiers going off of a big jump and decide to try that the next day, having never skied before. And it's the same thing with going out into the wilderness, going in mountainous terrain, hiking, any survival aspects at all. You want to know this stuff ahead of time. And then even to this day, even when you are experienced, I'm experienced, I go, but to this day, I always let somebody know where I'm going, how long I'm supposed to be gone, when they could expect me back. If they don't hear me back, hear back from me by 8 p.m., I've, I've either forgotten and I'm really sorry I should have called you or something's wrong. And those simple things, just knowing what you're doing out there, getting some basic training. And here's the thing. In the old days, we had, used to have to get that training from, I don't know, our uncle. You know, we'd come out with a can of beans and we'd go fishing or something. Now there's all kinds of amazing instructors that would teach you how to be in the mountainous terrain of Hawaii, how to be there safely and how to know how to traverse it. My son is a firefighter and he's participated in a handful of rescue people stranded on trails or gotten lost off of trails. And he says that if they had just prepared better, if they had just done the research or learned more about where they were going, they would have been in a much better position. As far as the preparing goes, you know, when I'm out on a trail, I mean, I might look a little geeky with my pack and everything, but, you mm -hmm. know, I found that the when people do hiking and say, so you go and you're fully prepared with a day pack because it's only a day hike, right? And then you've got, so what are you bringing all that stuff for? We're just going off for a few hours. That person becomes the hero when it hits the fan. 
because now you actually have some stuff. It's not that big of a deal to have 12 pounds of stuff on your back that are all the supplies that you need just in case you or someone you're with slips down a muddy trail. We know there are muddy trails in Hawaii and snaps an ankle and you are even just a mile from, from rescue. That could still be very dangerous. In addition to addressing the physical needs in survivor situations, things like finding water, building shelter, finding food, how important would you say is the mental component of survival? It's a tricky one. I lay out survival and with a lot of components included, and the, the will to live and the mental acuity are definitely big players on that list. Other things that come into it, your conditioning, your kit, what you have with you, your previous experience, those all play into it. But the way the mental part of this all comes in is really when the chips are horribly down and you're in a rough situation, that's where you start to find out who has the will to live. That said, if you're out there and you are not strengthened mentally to be in the place you're at, a very simple scenario could become a terrible scenario very quickly because you're not using that mind, that brain to assess the situation, make the right decisions. And that's it, right? With, with the right attitude, you know that the first thing you need to do is calm down and take stock and assess your, your zones. Of, I call them the zones of assessment, what's on your body, what's close at hand and what's further afield. Get all that information. Now you can make a decision. And the one thing I do like to say about survival, survival out there is not passive. It's proactive. If you're not proactive in any kind of situation where you're stuck in the wilderness, then you're allowing the circumstances to dictate to you what's going to happen. Instead, you want to flow with them and make good decisions and make some action happen. Be proactive. That was Survivor Man Les Stroud. Now, when you think about our state, the total area of the eight major Hawaiian islands is just under 11,000 square miles. That's pretty tiny when compared to the more than 60 million square miles of Pacific Ocean that surrounds it. When it comes to search and rescue missions in the waters off our islands, the local fire departments contribute significantly, but the bulk of the efforts fall on the shoulders of the U.S. Coast Guard. So we have computer-aided search tools that are taking environmental data. These are all predicted currents that we have a pretty good idea of where a boat or a canoe or a person might drift. That's Kevin Cooper, the search and rescue manager for the U.S. Coast Guard District 14 in Honolulu. Last year, the Coast Guard performed 287 search and rescue missions in waters off Hawaii and 105 so far this year, including the retrieval of a disabled sailboat and its crew just off of Kaena Point earlier this month. Cooper says our state's position in the Pacific makes search and rescues unique when compared to the mainland U.S. There are uniquenesses of the islands here, especially the way the currents move in the ocean. Some of the particulars of the way the water moves, especially close to the shoreline, makes it particularly important for us to reach out to our partners at other agencies, the lifeguards and fire departments on each island, who typically have a great knowledge of how those currents are going to move, because ultimately most of the people that we're looking for in the ocean are adrift, and they are moving in a certain direction. Getting lost on land and being lost at sea are two very different things. What are some things that you wish more of the public knew about being on the ocean that would better prepare them should they end up needing rescue? So I would say my top three things that I want every mariner to know are to bring your life jacket, number one, and make sure you have a life jacket for everyone on board and one that fits correctly. If we've got the kids on board the boat with us, make sure we have kid-sized life jackets. The second thing I would recommend is that emergency beacon that we've talked about. That beacon is reliable and it's dedicated to distress alerting, which is different than, you know, a lot of times we find ourselves relying on our cell phones Mm -hmm. as a primary means of communication, but sometimes those cell phone batteries die and then it becomes unreliable. Or you get beyond the cell phone tower's reach from the land and you can't get a signal. The third thing I would say is to have a VHF radio on board. That's a dedicated marine band radio. VHF is very high frequency. And what that allows you to do is connect with the Coast Guard series of towers throughout the Hawaiian Islands that will receive your distress call on the radio 
hopefully two towers will receive it, and it'll be able to determine the direction it comes from. And where those two lines cross should be your location, and that's where we'll be able to send rescuers. That's a great list, and it doesn't sound like those are hard things to get your hands on either. It sounds like some pretty practical stuff. All of those devices are available at your local marine store. We've got some great ones here in the islands. You can even order them online and just have them delivered right to your door. Say someone happens to get pushed out to sea or, or, or happens to be out in the water and they do find themselves in an emergency situation where they do need rescue. What is the number one thing someone in a survival situation like that can do to increase their chances of making it back to shore alive? I know we've talked about being prepared, but if you're already out there, what's the best thing they can do to increase their chances of survival? I would say mostly stay with your boat, stay with your watercraft. Detecting an object or a person or a boat in the water can be one of the most challenging parts of searching if we're not looking for an electronic signal. So when people stay with their boat, especially if they can remain out of the water to prevent hypothermia from setting in, those are two things that will help make you more detectable and less susceptible to becoming hypothermic. Because even though we have beautiful warm waters here in Hawaii, hypothermia is still an issue and anyone who's going to spend an extended amount of time in the ocean should be very aware of that. That was Kevin Cooper, search and rescue manager at the U.S. Coast Guard, District 14 here in Honolulu. Before that, we heard from survivor man uh, Les Stroud. They were talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the 2022 Search and Rescue Conference that kicks off tomorrow at Kualoa Ranch. The event is open to the public. Check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Pacific Gathering is a title of an exhibit that opened this week at the East-West Center Gallery here on Oahu. It features photos and treasures that came out of the Festival of Pacific Arts and Culture. It includes the work of Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer Manny Chrysostomo, who hails from Guam. It is a sneak peek of what is to come in Hawaii in 2024. Hawaii was to host the Arts Festival two years ago, but the pandemic pushed the festivities off. The event is traditionally held every four years in a different host country. The last time it was Guam. And we start off with show curator Annie Reynolds, and then we hear from Chrysostomo. So in 2016, as one of the official photographers, over the two-week festival, he took about 50,000 photographs. From that, he compiled down to about 200 photographs, brought a few additional to us that really featured the delegation from Hawaii. So we were able to feature that connection between Guam and Hawaii in the exhibition. And then from there, we selected down to about 80 photographs, just about over 80 photographs. What the exhibition does is really carries you through the festival. So at the beginning, you have the opening, kind of the focus on navigation, the canoe, traditional canoe welcoming ceremony. The first panel here, we have images of the background and the preparation, which really kind of brings you into the behind the scenes, really noticing and and recognizing the community, all the people that it brings to make the costumes come together, all the implements and all of the community support for the performers to go on stage. Then throughout the rest of the main gallery space, we focus more on the performances and the different cultural presentations Throughout the exhibition, Manny's photographs are also paired with the gifts that were given by the guest delegations to the host delegation, and those are on loan to us from the Council on the Humanities and the Arts from Guam. And this is really important because it gives us an idea of what to expect when we host it here. Absolutely, and that we're really trying to make that connection. So the final room of the exhibition goes all the way into our dining room and it's the final evening, the final finale performance by the host delegation in Guam, and then paired with, I think for the absolute finale, there was a big fireworks display. So we're really trying to connect to the festival happening here. Originally, before COVID, the plan was for Fest Pack to be in Hawaii in 2020. 
So our plan was for this exhibition to align in 2020 at the same time. When they postponed to 2024, we decided that we wouldn't postpone that far, moved it to 2022. It aligns with the 50th anniversary of the festival and then also is a bridge. So while we're able to include all 27 delegations in the room, whether through one of the gifts, through Manny's photographs, through supplemental videos, there's really a heavy focus also on recognizing Guam and celebrating Guam as the host delegation. And then seeing even on this front panel here, really that connection and that passing, kind of passing the torch almost from Guam to Hawaii in 2024. We've been hearing from East West Center curator Annie Reynolds. We also sat down with photographer Manny Chrysostomo. Full disclosure, he's a fellow Chamorro and a high school chum. He grew up in the village next to mine. Chrysostomo worked at the Detroit Free Press, where his photos won the prestigious 1989 Pulitzer. He now lives in the Bay Area, and he talked about how emotional it was returning home to Guam to be a part of that festival. The challenging part was not so much the, the imagery and, and, you know, what was happening in front of me or the events and stuff. I think the most challenging part was that right before Festback started, my mother passed away. And so I came back a little bit earlier. We buried my mother. We had funeral services at St. Jude Church in Sinania, where I grew up. And uh, we buried her on Saturday. And then the next early morning, I was um, photographing the canoe arrival. And then as soon as that was done, I went back to St. Jude Church because my granddaughter was being baptized at the same church that we did the funeral services for my mother. And then we went and had a party where all my eight siblings came. And then as soon as that party was winding down, I um, went and photographed the opening ceremonies and walked out with the delegation. And that was a, I think that was the most amazing part was that I was photographing, because I'm, I'm, I'm rarely, you being a journalist, you understand that I'm rarely, I'm always behind, we're behind the scenes, we're capturing this stuff. For me, it was like, it was a combination of both. I was part of the delegation. I went out to, you know, these thousands of people cheering the Guam delegation. I was part of that delegation going out. And so it was just, I wanted to soak in that moment, but still try to document it. And, you know, growing up in Guam, you know, you always hear about all the other islands across the Pacific and everybody's got their own identity and their cultures are different. But I imagine being home at that time with your mother passing and then uh, your granddaughter being baptized. I mean, gosh, that must have been just lots of emotions kind of swirling. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the range of emotion was amazing. But, I, you know, my mother would she would want me to continue this. I mean, this, my mother supported my photography career forever. And then the, on, the, on the other end, you know, I want to be able to document this for my granddaughter and her contemporaries growing up, you know, not just in Guam, in the other islands of Oceania, that some of this stuff becomes sort of a record of how these islands met, how these islands shared their cultures. And I just, uh, I, did, I did what I had to do just to make it happen. It was, you know, it was hard, but um, I just felt the spirit of my mother throughout, throughout Festback. Well, I just, I think of identity, you know, and, uh, you know, all the different islands are under different countries. And, and so they've, their, their cultures have kind of changed because of those influences. And so I'm sure when you see all these groups come together, it's like, well, where is our place in the Pacific and, you know, in history? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a weird thing because you, you, you marvel at, uh, you know, the Yappies women continue to, to dance topless, and that's the way they've been doing it, and they maintain that culture. I, you know, I think whatever the Western influences or colonialism that, that um, affected the island of Guam, maybe we've, you know, we've been tempered to, to do all this stuff. But it's just amazing to see uh, all these other islands just bringing the, the stuff that they, they've passed on for generations. And do you have a favorite group of photos, or I don't know? <laughs> there, there are so many. I, I think I, it, it, it wasn't that good, but I think the, the pictures of me going out with the Guam delegation was, was just really, really special. And then actually even the closing ceremony when we went out again. And I was, because uh, then I got really great access because I was in the middle of it all instead of being, you know, 
where they put the press. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's just amazing. There's a, there's a beautiful picture of the Rapa Nui and just that, that simple little, you know, fist bump, right? It's just the, the, the coming together of the, of the cultures and stuff. You know, Kathy, it was just, it was, a, it was just amazing. Every day I just felt like there was this, everybody embraced each other. And the other really, really cool thing is I, as part of my delegation duty, I had five photographers that were sort of part of a, a workshop. And so I would work with them and we would shoot the event. And we were posting stuff on Facebook and I was kind of new to, to Facebook and Instagram. And we've had so much engagement. I think by the end we had 1.5 million engagements and stuff. And what happened was our pictures, you know, of the Cook Islands or the Solomon Islands, they were, they were going to those islands. The, the delegates from, from New Caledonia will see the Facebook posts and share it. And so all the people in New Caledonia who couldn't come to Guam were, were seeing it. And we were, you know, we were, by the time we were fourth or fifth day, people knew exactly what we were doing. And they were just, they were just happy to be part of it. So if you have any advice for the Hawaii delegation <laughs> as they plan this post-COVID, well, we're not really post-COVID yet, but, you know, it is going to be a challenge. Yeah, you know, I just think, you know, Guam had the way it did things. Um, the other incredible thing was when the, the canoes, when the, the Sackmans and the Proas came into Hagatnya, the boat basin bay, um, you know, sun was breaking on the first day and and if they can replicate that, because that is, for me, that was even better than walking this delegation is seeing all these, these proas and segment, Kathy. I mean, this is the way it was. All these, you know, Pacific voyagers and navigators for hundreds of years, they just went to each island in these amazing vessels, right? I mean, with no modern conveniences, no GPS or, you know, no motors or whatever. And just, uh, you know, for me, it was almost like this, this amazing time machine when I saw those, those canoes and those hackments and those proas coming into the island. Because that's, that's the way we, we went out to the world. That's how we connected. Yes, yeah, and that's how we gathered, you know? And well, I think with the Hokulea's voyages uh, across the Pacific, I mean, it's inspired a whole generation, you know, thanks to Mao P.I. look and passing those traditions down to the Hawaii people and now, you know, uh, having folks learn more about it. I mean, um, yeah, it's something to be proud of. Yeah, because I think that's, you know, I think maybe that's uh, Hawaii's secret weapon is, is that, the, the voyagers and the navigators, because they, they were huge. I mean, their vessels are, God, amazing, right? I mean, they're a couple hundred years old, but, you know, when they built those, it's impressive stunning yeah right well are you going to come back for hawaii's uh um, I'm, I'm wanting to really really bad i mean it was you know i was so excited because uh, you know it was supposed to be in 2020 i was gonna this exhibit was gonna open up before festback and then i was gonna get to shoot and uh you know i hope i get that opportunity that was Festback photographer and Pulitzer Prize winner Manny Chrysostomo, whose exhibit at the East West Center Gallery runs through July 17th. It is free of charge. You can check out links to Pacific Gathering on our website later today for gallery hours. Support for HPR comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island, presenting jazz pianist Joey Alexander and his trio, performing at 7 p.m. Wednesday, May 25th, in person and on demand at kahilutheater.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dean Slider, author of The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding nirvana in classic literature. Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, FICOH.com. Paula Poundstone, the household name that's represented committee excellence for the last three decades. She's been celebrated as a -a one-of-a-kind performer and voice actor, as well as a longtime panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And she's taking her comedy tour to Honolulu this weekend. But when she spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote, the comedian said if she were to do it all over again, she wouldn't be called Paula Poundstone at all. No, the truth is I've never liked my name. I, I would have loved to have changed my name. I guess I just didn't think of it in time. For this interview, I can call you something different. We can workshop it. Well, you know, when I was a kid, I don't know how old, like probably four or five or so, I used to insist that people call me Lipstick Nancy. I had a cousin named Nancy and I had a babysitter named Nancy and they both had long blonde hair. And, you know, I had curly brown hair. And so the grass is always greener. And they were both very beautiful. So to me, that was a sign of beauty. And then I always liked red lipstick. And so I felt the combination of the two would make a beautiful name. My siblings called me Popeye, but they didn't call me Lipstick Nancy. But uh, I'm over it now. I have one kid whose middle name is uh, Kat. And she used to tell people, she was very embarrassed of that. I don't know why. It's a great name, but she used to tell people that it was short for Catherine. It's not, but I do believe she's part cat. It could be the way she licks her hands. <laughs> I have 10 cats, and uh, while my children were growing up, we always had lots. I did just have my, um, I have two big dogs, and one of them was just diagnosed with congenital heart disease. And so what they did was, they inserted a tube into my bank account and drained it. That seemed to help the dog. Who watches all the animals while you're out on the road? Um, a woman works for me that she started uh, um, as my nanny. That was was just after my middle daughter was born. And so she's worked for me for 28 years. So I must have done something right. Now, I wonder when you, because you spend so much time just in your line of work, jetting through different cities, when you are in so many different environments, are there routines that you do in each place to make them feel more familiar? I think I'm very bear-like when I travel. I, I become so unbelievably sedentary that every place feels familiar to me because it's all pretty much the same hotel room after a while. And I barely, I'm only, I'm only in a town for one night generally. Every now and then there's some place I'll do for two nights. And, and the place I do for two nights, I may actually walk around outside. But for the most part, I, I live a very sedentary life on the road. So if I had one of those step counters, I don't even need a step counter. I can just do it in my head. I took five. <laughs> You and your shows, though, interact so closely with the audience and really bring them into the stories that you're telling. That's one of the things that you're known for. Do you feel like you get a sense of what a city or place is like just from the cadence of those interactions? Maybe in a very nuanced kind of a way. When I work in Maine, I often look out across a a sea of, of gray hair. People in Maine, for the most part, don't dye their hair. It doesn't mean... No one does, but the women in Maine, it's not unusual. They're not older than other crowds that I perform to. Uh, They're not older than me. They they just don't dye their hair. So I can tell when I'm in Maine. I I love to work. No matter what state I'm in, really terrific, fun people come out to see me. I worked at the Villages in Florida, and I had no idea what it was. I didn't even know I was supposed to be working there. I, uh, when I get a job, my manager calls me up. She says, uh, are you free on such and such a night? Right. I open my calendar. I look, I say, yeah. She'll tell me the name of the city. If she tells me more information than that, I don't even write it down. I write everything down on a need to know basis. So the only thing it says in my calendar and the only thing it said for that date was Orlando. Well, I've worked 
to Orlando before, so that didn't surprise me in any way. Well, I was doing a radio interview, like maybe a couple days before I left for this job. And it was one of those morning interviews, you know, the, the lawnmower and the madman in the morning. And, you know, we were making jokes and stuff. And then finally, at the end of the interview, one of the guys says to me, Paula, why are you working at the Villages? And I said, what do you mean? I'd never even heard of the place. And he explained to me that it, it had a reputation for uh, being, well, it's a retirement community, a huge retirement, but it had a reputation for being very right wing. And I just laughed when he said it, because I said, I go, well, I guess I got my work cut out for me. And thank goodness this person told me, because otherwise it would have all come as a big shock to me. But when I got to the theater there, because they have their, their own theater, when I got to the theater there, I told the audience that story. They thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. And I said to them, I said, we'll just have to find the stuff that we have in common. And you know what? We had tons in common. We laughed and laughed. It was such a fun night. It's really one of my fondest performing memories. So the truth is, as much as we like to feel like we're all terribly, terribly unique and different, we're not. Now, I wonder, because you performed over so many different mediums, you've appeared in specials, on television, in live performances, and then also for us over in radio, you are known as one of the foremost panelists on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, as well as the host of your own program, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Do you prefer interacting with a live audience in that setting, or do you like being a disembodied voice? Oh, it's a lot more enriching, too be in front of an audience. I'll tell you, wait, wait, over the years, because it's been on for a long, long time now, I think I've been with them for 22 years, and they were on a couple of years before I showed up. When I first started doing that show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, on NPR, we, as the panelists and the and the scorekeeper, which was uh, Carl Castle, uh, and Peter Sagal, the host, we were not even all in the same room together. We were not at our homes for the most part. We were in whatever studio, uh, you know, NPR studio was closest to us. So Peter was in Chicago, Carl was in DC. Uh, I was in Los Angeles, Adam was in New York. I think Roy has his own studio at his house. But anyways, so there was no audience in front of us. But eventually they found a home for themselves in a performance space, in a, not even a theater, an auditorium in the basement of a bank in downtown Chicago and man the difference as a performer and we don't interact with the audience in the way that I do when I'm on stage in my regular show except for during the break it's an audience watching a radio show get made but generally speaking by the way a firecracker hot audience we did one time we did um Red Rocks, we did that theater up in that amphitheater in Red Rocks. I think it was 8,500 people. And it's as if every one of them was handpicked. I mean, they were so much fun. And sometimes when you do like an enormous crowd like that, it sort of loses something in a way. It's, all, it's like when you put too much oil on something you're making, you know, started out a good thing, but now when you finish, you're like, ugh. Sometimes that can happen with one of those kind of huge crowds, but these people were just perfect from start to finish. And then, of course, along came COVID. First, we were back in the studio, and then we couldn't even do that. So then we're all in our own homes. I will say, especially after being at home for 15 months during the stay-at-home order, that when I was able to get back on stage again, one of the things that's glorious about it, and I knew this from years of experience, but one of the things that's glorious about it is being able to share with an audience in front of me, you know, how depressed I, you know, I feel about this thing or that thing, or I'll say to them, I'll go like, geez, you know, I did read where it's not uncommon during this period of COVID, not because you have or had COVID, but just from living in the stress of the, you know, the, 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 the COVID years, um, that a lot of us are suffering from memory loss. And then I'll tell them a couple of stories about that. I go, anybody? And people are like, oh, yeah, I have that. And that, there's something about, I always call it the recognition laughter. 
there's something about stuff that's funny because you recognize what the person is talking about. And all of a sudden that sort of, that sort of yoke of I'm the only one, that is such a comfort. And, and then you can laugh at it. Trust me, I don't laugh a lot at home alone. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you put a glass to my hotel room door, you never hear. <laughs> when did you realize like, oh, I'm funny? And was it before or after someone else told you you were funny? I don't know for sure. I know I love the sound of laughter and what's not to love. So I think I was always drawn to that. In addition to that, uh, when I was in kindergarten, I received, uh, what was it? They used to write summary letters as in lieu of a report card. And the first sentence of the last paragraph in the summary letter written by my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Bump, I think it was May of 1965, I think, said, I have enjoyed many of Paula's humorous comments about our activities. I suppose it's like you give your dog a treat because you want it to do that thing it did again. For me, uh, getting positive feedback from an adult about something that I had done was really powerful. I don't think my mother thought I was particularly funny, so I'm sure when she read that, she was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy your hotel room when you're here as well as the show. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. That was comedian Paula Poundstone chatting with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. Poundstone is performing at the Hawaii Theater Center this Sunday. The show is co-sponsored by Hawaii Public Radio. We will have links on our website. Well, that's it for us. Up tomorrow, it is a call-in show with Dr. Kathy Kozak of The Body Show. Mask or no mask, physically distanced or not, how are you coping as we are well into yet another COVID surge? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.